0: Oh no, Ambush, she both off to be a bit quicker than that, I reckon.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Season 3 of The Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. As two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm standing here with Tim Curtis. Hello Ben. G'day Tim. And I'm Ben Pronk. And this week our guest is someone who I dare say would be a household name in Australia, Senator Mm. Jackie Lambie. Yeah, I think one of the most fascinating
3: politicians in the Australian political system. Not backward in voicing an opinion on the things that she's fiercely passionate about.
2: Yeah, and we're certainly going to experience some of that passion uh, in our discussion with Jackie. Fascinating chat where we cover a whole range of, of topics. Um, but really interestingly, also look at, at her evolution and development uh, as, a, as a politician and, mm. and look at some of the, the sort of pros and cons of, of being a controversial figure in Australian politics. And growing up in Devonport, mm-hmm. Tasmania joining the army and doing 10
3: years in the military. I think there's some great themes that we'll tease out there. And then I'm curious as to what attracted her to get into politics and continue that life of service. And of course, as you say, we will no doubt find out the things that she's fiercely passionate about and what troubles her most about bureaucracy, departments, politicians, and everything beyond.
2: Yeah, and in particular, there there is a strong sort of veterans and military theme, and and we'll touch on uh, her position on the Brereton report, mm-hmm. the the um, IGADF Inspector General of the Australian Defence Force uh, inquiry into alleged war crimes in Afghanistan, and, and she's written some articles on that that we'll talk about. She has, and and once again, not not short of a, a strong opinion that she's not afraid to um, to to put out there. Mm-hmm.
3: And uh, also methamphetamine, the, the scourge of ice in the community and most will know, if you know her well, you'll understand that her son was um, involved in ice and she's been very vocal about what we need to do to clean up that scene. Let's get on with the show. Yeah, oh, nothing's off limits, just
0: ask me whatever you want.
3: Cool, cool. Okay. Let's go. Mind you, I'll warn
2: you now, that can lead you
0: right down the garden path. So be very, very (laughs) careful.
3: Don't worry, we're an explicit rated (laughs) podcast. You can say whatever you want. (laughs) And we do that just in case. All right, welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm Tim Curtis with my co-host Ben Pronk. G'day Tim. And Ben, very special guest, joining us via Zoom, Senator Jackie Lambie. Jackie, welcome to the Unforgiving Sixty podcast.
0: Oh, thank you. I'm sure it's going to be terribly unforgiving an hour after this. So I can assure
2: you, <laughs> I've never thought of it like that. It, it's it's not designed to be unforgiving for the guest. It's just supposed to be unrelenting <laughs> for the guest. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, I guess we'll see. What do we got? Fifty nine yeah. minutes left. Let's go. <laughs> yeah,
2: well, <that's laughs> right. Are you already counting down the clock, Jack? <laughs> yeah, mate.
0: Especially we haven't even I asked our ask first question. Sitting in front of me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so remember the days boys gonna
2: ask. Do you remember the days of
3: pages when you used to carry a pager around? And if you really didn't want to be in that thing, you'd have someone set your pager off, <laughs> which would be your reason to <laughs> oh, go and make know, a mate. telephone I was call. To check out chick.
0: There was nobody pages back
3: then <laughs> i <can> tell you <laughs> Well let's let's start there. Maybe that's a fantastic place to start is your upbringing in Devonport. What did that look like before we get into life in uniform and beyond?
0: Yeah, so for me, um, you know, I had a normal, fairly normal upbringing. My dad was a truck driver and my mum worked at the um, toweling factory for many years. Um, They separated when I think I was 12 or 13 and then obviously mum went back to school because her back had gone. She couldn't work on the cement floors in the factory anymore. So that meant for us having to move into public housing as teenagers. So um, mum eventually got her qualifications and I think that's when we were sort of turned 16 and she basically stayed there until... Uh, in that public housing until my brother finished his school which went about another three or four years and obviously I went out to the army um you know it's fairly normal played a lot of sports did horse riding all that sort of stuff you know had a few rides in a police car on the back when I was 13 or 14 you know <laughs> went and visited the magistrates had a load of him all that UB stuff you know just so to- what,
3: what was that for what were you appearing in front of the magistrate for?
0: Well, you know, I may have been hiding a bottle of spemanty under my jumper, and um, put the spemanty under the back wheel of the police car, and the police car took off and went over that well the policeman went, right. and uh, that <laughs> then sprinted the back of the tire, and that uh, then uh, the tire went down before we got back to the police station. So it was not popular no. down the Devonport Police station on that night. There was another event where we may have had a few drinks when we were about 16 and uh, we may have gone next door to get some wood. We may have been borrowing, we'll just say borrowing, some pieces of wood for the fire inside. (laughs) And uh, unfortunately, when you're giggling and you've got your girlfriends and I fell back and knocked myself there out next thing I come to and the police were standing over me then too. So I have had experience on that side of the law, I have to say. (laughs)
3: And so what you describe as a normal upbringing in Devonport, but um, probably has shaped some of your opinions, the sort of things that you're bringing to your political views now?
0: Well, I was much of a rebel, mate, so yeah <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't find put that politely. Yeah. And and let's I'm talk not about sure I like I don't like the institution stuff, you know. Just yeah. sort of do as you're told. Just sort of doesn't do as you're told doesn't work for me.
3: All right, so well I'm just that why topic. you joined the army. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So you don't like the institution thing, so let's join the army. Why join the army?
0: Um, for me I after my experience with the law I thought, um, you know, I better uh, better pay some dues back to society and thought I'd be a uh, join the police. And then, unfortunately for me, or fortunately, I was down at Centrelink with my girlfriends. They were looking for jobs. I already had a part-time job and was still doing... Um, I was back doing Year 12. That's after I took a gap year. So I went back and did Year 12. I got about halfway through that. And uh, back then it was a big green old bus, mate, the old Kermit bus, as we used to call it. And uh, there was three of us and we made a pact on the outside that no worries, we were all going to join the army, no problem. So we went in there, we had the most, um, I guess, charming recruiting officer. I think he was a sergeant or a warrant officer, I can't really remember at the time. And anyway, he talked me into it fairly quickly, gave me the clipboard I signed. I passed that down to my girlfriends and they um, pissed off. They'd done the (laughs) bolt on me, mate. (laughs) Anyway, so I quickly, you know, I was tap dancing here. I said, I'll take that back. And he said, no, you know what? He said, we really need some females in the army. That's how desperate they were. Yeah, righto. Okay, um, we'll just give you a go. And that, within three months, I was in, you know, unlike today where you're waiting, you know, I've got guys out there waiting 18 months, two years. It's an absolute shit fight, which is disgusting. Yeah. So,
3: so we'll come to that contemporary picture in a little bit. So through Kapuka and initially to the Corps of Transport? Yes.
0: And yes, when did you? Was, when did, where and were carrying you? a baby. So I was pregnant before Ooh. I went to Kapuka, went through Kapuka, went to the Army School of Transport, uh, did my IETs, and then I said, Really, guys, can I'm telling you I'm pregnant? Uh, that was after I told them at Kapuka. And I guess back then, you know, in late 80s, um, those urine tests didn't come up till 10. 11 weeks and I was only just pregnant before I went in Mm. in there so uh, that was very interesting um to watch the army jump up and down about that having this woman that they'd never picked up gone through kapuka um and like I say to my son who's in the army I don't know why I need to go through kapuka twice but let's not worry about that um yeah so for me that was that was really interesting I look back and I think uh uh-huh you know because what the first their first thought was quick get rid of her, throw her out, do something, you know, and uh, my mum being like a little mafia woman, uh, uh, basically threatened to take legal action against them and then um, next thing I'm staying in. So so that was pretty interesting and then going through that transport course, I had all-male corporals, so you can imagine what they were like. I remember jumping off the Unimog and by then I was about six months pregnant and I remember the sergeant going as red in the face as possible and I think his hair was falling out he was running up the transport yard telling me not to jump off the fucking uni it. <laughs>
4: anyway
0: so then yeah so then I got the nickname I was a soldier of spare parts so anyway it all went down very very well so it was never going to me in the army she was a pretty rough start from the beginning
2: and then you, you mentioned you'd, you'd sort of flirted with the idea of joining the civilian police, and you ended yes. up joining the Royal Australian Corps of Military Police.
0: Yeah, I did about halfway through, and I did that because I think, when because I, I had three years, I was very lucky to have three years at the Army School of Transport, I obtained just about every license you possibly could except for a um, a semi so um for me it was like i really had nothing more i could achieve there and because back then i was still what about 23 23 and a half and i thought i could actually get more out of this so I'd go over to military police um of course what i know now is that you know you don't walk straight out of there and straight into police. you've basically got to go and do the whole police, but just not give you all your qualifications that you need for when you walk out so anyway that was um that was interesting um so I'm glad. I did, did do a movements course in that too. I did change over to movements. Start we finished the movements course and then decided it really wasn't my cup of tea. So I got my face ripped off for of that. And I, you know, I use some of that movements knowledge in my political career. So you know it hasn't been that much of a waste of uh, a waste of money. But um, yeah, it's certainly something I don't regret.
2: That was something I was going to ask, you know, looking back on your, your time, you, you mentioned it wasn't a, a necessarily a neat fit in the army, but what did you take out of your time in uniform that, that has, has stood you in good stead, sort of post that and into politics?
0: Uh, well, I think for us, you know, they are trying trailing trying those girls in combat now. Well, they were doing it back in my day, but, you know, they tried us in field force back then as we used to call it. Mm um and i think for me that was probably the best thing i ever did was to put my hand up and have a shot at that because that really toughened me up it's a whole different ball game in being with those boys in the combat units and what it is in those pogue ones or logistics so that was a wake-up call and i'll tell you what we got smashed there was about three or four of us i remember being at one mp company and we you know it was either sink or swim there was no doubt about that and i did sink there for a while i've got to be honest with you um, and then I had to learn how, learn how to handle you guys and that took me seven or eight years to do that. Um, so I think by doing that's helped me to be able to get where I am today um, and to be able to handle you boys a lot better than what I could that first six, seven years I was in the army, I can tell you. <laughs> but the best thing I ever did was start swinging the crowbar at right? you yes, and I'll tell you what, that, would be, that was it. You never, you never got one bad word at you after that. How about that?
3: So geographically, where were you serving as a military police officer?
0: Yeah, so I was at Inogra and then um, I went into Darwin. So that was fairly early days at Robertson Barracks. I um, got posted up there for my last two years, um, which I was really grateful for. Uh, we had, I think, one army had moved up there by then in full just about. Um, so that was when it first, first was establishing itself. I haven't been back up there since, but I am looking forward to going back up there and having mm. a look at how much, especially with the Marines and that up there. Mm. Yes, I do look forward. My my son's doing it now. He's playing the pain of it for five years up there. And, uh, yeah, so I guess we all end up in Darwin or Townsville sooner or later.
3: That's inevitable. We we both served in Townsville (laughs) in our formative years. Um, So promoted to the rank of corporal, I'd argue that, that rank corporal's probably heart and soul of the military. You know, if, if that rank bracket is doing their job, gee, it makes life a whole lot easier for everyone else. Um, Leadership-wise, lessons learned from the military, what were your key takeaways? And maybe if I can frame that question slightly differently, if people are thinking about a career in the military, what would they get in terms of traits and attributes? What would they take away from that career?
0: I think for me, it's what, what you make of it. You know, I was a full corporal and then I got into some trouble, just like my civilian life, and then I lost a stripe and then I had to go gain it back, you know. <laughs> Nothing's ever easy, God almighty. Um, but I think for me, it's what people really, it's what you want out of it. And if you really want to see the best out of yourself, you really need to try and get that, that combat service. There's no doubt about that. It's fine to do the training establishments and the poke all the logistics, but really um, what really made me was going into those those combat units. There's there's no denying that. So um, without that, without serving in those field units, um, I don't think I would be where I am today. I really don't. That really pushed me to the edge, Um, you know, just knowing that Basically, you know, male and female, we all have our weaknesses. We have our strengths, and so well, you boys have got your weaknesses. You're filling the strengths, um, you know. I had, and then you've got to do double the amount of physical training. Uh, you've got to outshoot you guys at the range. Which after ten years, I finally got that up down pad. As a matter of fact, they half and wouldn't even come out and shoot. I'd go out there every day if that's what it took, just to kick your ass. That's right. <laughs> so you've got to find out where you fit, and where your skill sets are the best, and that's what you use, and you know that's how you gain the respect. Um, so for me, it, w- it wasn't always easy in the armed forces, but it's certainly, without that, I would not be in that Senate today. There's no doubt about it.
2: Mm. You've mentioned a couple of times about the, the sort of gender split and some of those differences. Um, were there parallels between what must have been a bit of a boys club in the field army at that stage and what you encountered within Australian politics when you first uh, joined?
0: Oh, yes. So yeah, it was right. the so much with labour but definitely uh, club, very boys club um you know you you can you go around those clubs, but they're not that one because i'm not on their side i guess i don't i don't play with them because i'm an independent so that makes it a bit more difficult um but their clubs are about to strength the boys clubs you get in the army so for me um you know i just think yeah that's what i'm very grateful that you guys sort of roughed me up there for a few years when I was when I was serving because it actually mm. hasn't done me any harm. Mm. It's me how to manage things and take things and not take it to heart.
3: skin business why what attracted you to go into politics Jackie
0: um because for me I think uh, you know after fighting DBA for eight or nine years ending up at the AET, and because of that um having to fight them uh, until I got to the AET, and getting out and basically being being on a single mother's pension and trying to raise two young boys um through that and at that stage Uh, Of course, all my mates that were around me were fairly ex-army. They were going through the same thing as well. It was taking them. I could see the destruction it was doing to them and their family. It was actually doing it to mine um, as well. And I remember very early on, I think it was about the second year I was fighting against um, Veterans Affairs that I just sat in the corner and cried and I promised myself or I promised I'd made a deal with God. You know, I never thought about God or faith until then, but I had nothing (laughs) left, Mm. that if I ever got a second chance at life, I had no idea how I was going to do it, but I would get up and fight for those, um, those, those, especially those diggers um, that seemed to be worse off um, than the officers, no disrespect there, but um, much harder for their, their claims and doing what they're doing, that I'd come out and I'd fight for them. Once again, I had no idea how I was going to do that. That was just the promise um, that I made to myself, that I, you know, if I had that second chance, that second chance didn't come until uh, 2010. Um, but, and that was ten years later, um, and I think going through that, the resilience that I didn't get from out of the army, uh, the rest of it filled up with Veterans Affairs. There's no doubt about that, because um, you get to that point after ten years, you know, you won't check your mail, you won't answer your phones, you lock yourself inside, you pushed all your family, your friends away, um, and that's quite devastating. And then of course, you know, um, I had a lot of trouble with my youngest son, who was my carer. That you know, eventually I um, end up in ice and then rehab for eighteen months, and. Mm. You know, so it does have its impact. So for me, it was a fire in the belly to say, you know what, you bastards aren't getting away with this. I just don't know how I'm going to deal with this and I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'll find a way. So, but that's what I mean about all that army stuff because without that 10 years in the army, there's just no way I wouldn't have had, I would have had those coping mechanisms and that determination and that resilience to get up and say, you know what, fuck yous, I'm coming. Mm, that's, mm. that's exactly what I was like.
2: Do, do you feel you've made progress? I mean, obviously, we're seeing a whole new generation of veterans entering into the, the DVA, the Department of Veterans Affairs system, and, um, you know, personally, we, we know people who have had amazing care from there. We know people have had similar frustrations to the ones you've experienced. Are, are you seeing progress uh, in terms of what you experience personally and what you're seeing uh, these days?
0: No, absolutely not. Not out of no. the Department of Veterans Affairs. They're going backwards. I have done ever since I got in, but I think what, what I am... The good thing about this is where when I started out in 2012 and going around, um, first of all, I was an independent before I jumped on the bicycle with Clive Palmer, um, was that uh, I'd walk up to people and they'd say, what are you, you know, I didn't really know anything about politics at all. And they'd say, what are you fighting for? And I'd say veterans and they'd go, well, aren't they being, I thought they were okay. And then you start telling them stories. So it's the public, it's getting it out there with the public and, you know, I've noticed there's more build-up, more build-up. There's stories every week now. People are out there talking about it and that's where we want it. So it's a public expectation that's going to put the pressure on the Prime Minister um, and those in the future to make sure they're doing the right thing by veterans. But to be honest with you, that department's gone backwards and so I believe the leadership in defence has as well. With what I'm seeing come through and the issues, I mean, I've had over a 1,000 cases to deal with in... um, what's that, since September, so by Christmas time, in 15 months, um, we'd hit the thousand mark where we'd helped over a thousand people, both against defence and Department of Veterans Affairs
2: we' We're keen to circle back to some of those uh, contemporary military issues, but we've 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 jumped a bit, and that was your transition into politics. So you mentioned that you you medically discharged from defence, had an awful experience with DVA, and that that was a bit of a driving force to to make a change. Can you talk about your transition into politics and um, time on the bike with Clive Palmer amongst other parties that you've you've worked with?
0: Yeah, so when I went out there, because I, um, I sold everything up, I made about 100,000 bucks in my pocket, and because uh, I had no idea what I was doing, and I thought I'd be to leave. So I just got my car done in um, a jacket over it, starred stripes, and made it so you can whistle on the highway. And I had a, just wore a jacket around. I was with Rotary Country Women's Association uh, doing a lot of charity work. Uh, Chamber, the business chamber of Bernie, Chamber of Commerce, I was with them. Um, They were really good. So, uh, Rotary uh, for a whole year went out and to build myself back up because I had nothing left after being, you know, basically I walked out in front of a car in 2009. Uh, From there, Veterans Affairs decided that I did need help. Um, So, then I spent the next two years in and out of a a psych unit or a health clinic, uh, whatever you want to call them. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, once once I did that uh, and then got those, they trialed, started trialling stuff with my back, that worked. And then uh, it was basically go, go, go. Uh, so for me, I had to build back up. I had to go back to uh, speaking. So I went to something like Rostrum or Toastmasters. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you guys call them over there. I had Rotary, which just let me out the loose with a, a tin raising money. So I'd go to the football um, you know, and standing in front of the football uh, grandstands and we're raising money over three months. We wanted to hit 90000 I think I raised about thirteen or 14000 of that in 10 weeks myself just standing in front of those football. What I needed to be able to do is say, you know, it's funny, I could get out in a parade ground mm. and scream out instructions, people move, but I couldn't stand in front of people and ask them to put change in a bucket. Mm. So for me, pushing myself, I knew where I had to build up, I knew where all my weaknesses were and I had a lot of them. Uh, and I had to get back to where I was, back to that strength. Uh, So I was doing everything. I was walking around the businesses, ended up um, nearly tripling the membership in the Chamber, Burning Chamber of Commerce over about six months while I was working for them while they let me out loose, which was very good of them. Um, So, you know, so while I was giving back to society, it was giving back to me. Um, And then I started to run out of money. Uh, That was in 2000, by the end of 2012 uh i contacted no, i contacted clive palmer in the december i had no idea really about this bloke i'd seen him on tv he said he was going to run um i have so i started sending him stuff about veterans and what was going on and it only took about four weeks and he contacted me um and then from there on it took him about another uh, eight or nine weeks to convince me to go over because i I knew I was close, like I'd done a lot of running around but I knew I didn't have the numbers and the only way I was going to be able to do it was by him throwing a bit of extra behind me. So that's mm. where I was I think to me that was a breaking point because I'd actually been able to turn my life around, get that far but know that I was not going to be able to get that seat first up on my own mm. two feet. Mm. So for me, I, you know, so I made up in the last election, don't worry about that. But, um, you know, I wanted to be able to do that first up and I couldn't quite... Couldn't quite get there. Um, obviously, I got elected from that. Um, and then I had nine months on the sidelines. Um, and Clive was very, very good. We had a state election coming up, so he put me on the books um, because I'd come off my paper TV. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able... You know, I had no job experience by then. I'd been 13 years out of un- being unemployed and all the rest. Um, so he matched their payments that they were basically giving me so I could just tell them where to shove it and come off it. <laughs> Um, although they were happy to, I think they were happy to continue to support me because I was still rehabilitating even though I got in. but It was very too sticky for me and I just didn't want their cash anymore. Um, so, yeah, so he was very good like that. And then, um, obviously, we went in, we started in the July. I'd split up with him by November after two years of um, trailing with him and then went out on my own. Um, and from there, I've just uh, been re-elected, I think, three times in, well, since, what what's that, two twelve. In six years or seven years, I've been mm. re-elected to serve six for six years. So, really, I've earned 18 years in the Senate. And no doubt they'll be, you know, putting me on the edge again. But, um, you know, it takes a lot. Uh, last time I ran, uh, obviously, I got done for dual citizenship. Uh, that was quite difficult. That was a lot yeah. to take once again after getting that far mm. uh, and, and being able to, you know, make the difference that you start to make. And then it's taken off you because of that, because your father's got, been brought over here, 14 months old, in Naps, never been back, and you're a bloody Jewish citizen. Mm. And that's after I used to toast the Queen when we we're in the armed forces. Well, but she no longer gets a toast from me, I'll be bloody honest. <laughs>
4: yeah.
0: um, so last time, then I had to go and do, you know, celebrity get me out of here, which only mm. really killed me. Um, you know, do some dating game on the Sunday night. The best thing actually out of that, we got to go back to the Middle East and go back to where you come from. And you know, without being one of those, probably sitting in an armored vehicle, being taken around for a couple of days. Uh, you know, it was a real deal. Um, you know, we got shot at. We went out in the front line. Um, all that sort of stuff. So that was that was very interesting. So I got a goodbye to that for three weeks. So I was really grateful for that.
2: Mm. It's uh, funny, Clive Palmer's been in the the news a lot in WA. I think uh, the West Australians got more headline <laughs> mileage out of him than than in than he, Aussie he, than the the Eagles. He can fill a billboard too. I'll tell you that. WA, <laughs> <laughs> but but interested in your thoughts. I mean, obviously, pretty early formative sort of experience with Clive. Sort of reflections on your time with him and and the the Palmer United Palmer party.
0: Yeah, I think um, there was a lot of razzle-dazzle with the party. I think everybody had a lot of hope because there was someone, you know, wow, this is new on the scene. It's not Liberal, it's not Labor. Uh, first time in history you've got a billionaire chucking a heap of people out there to give um, normal Australians a shot, all that sort of thing. Um, that was all fine. I think for me, um, when I got elected and when I got in, after spending all that time under fighting Veterans Affairs, now I still had trust issues, a lot of them. I still had... I wouldn't say psychological issues, but I was still trying to still trying to beat my own demons after going through all that. And that, that took a little bit longer um, than anticipated. I probably didn't have the best, um, maybe the best advisor when I went in there either. Um, that didn't help. Um, so having all those issues on top, it just seemed easy for me to get out, walk and, and stand on my own two feet. In saying that, I still... Um, you know, I was a bit patchy with Clive and I there for a year. Um, I talked to him, uh, I'd say f- regularly. Mm. Um, and if we're in the same area, we'll go out and have a meal and stuff like that. I am really, even though I couldn't see it at the time and I, I look back, um, I use things that I didn't use back then that he's taught me. Certainly is, mm. it, is absolutely um, priceless these days. Um, so I, I don't regret my time, time with him because um, without, without him, first of all, I wouldn't have won my seat. Um, and secondly, I wouldn't have um, some tools up my sleeve that I can use that he taught me himself, and I'll be very, very grateful for that. So hmm.
3: mm. he's, he's an interesting character, and I probably don't want to hijack the whole episode talking about Clive, but he seems to be quite binary. He's either hero or villain to most. What are you, what's your view on that?
0: Oh, for me, I guess um, he's always, you know, apart from that, you know, it's a bit like a divorce when you go through one, you know, you get that, you know, first 12 months is a bit argy-bargy. Um, for me, I was very lucky out of the three senators that were there. You know, he could see I was still struggling. Even before I got in, he sent me to the US. He had me sitting in front of as a senator-elect. He knew people. has got a massive black book, little black book out there, knows everybody and all the world leaders, uh, he used to blow, he was the secretary of the Madrid Club. That's very big. That takes all the, for, all the uh, former world leaders and that had these big meetings every couple of years. They all show up, hence he had at his school and resort as well. So he was able to open doors for me and that helped mm. um, a lot off his back. So I swung off his tail quite a bit. So he did put, he did throw a lot of energy um, into me um, in mm. trying to help me out. But, you know, when you're stuck in that cloud... I guess, you know, like you guys, it's no different being the war zone. you get everything going on, you can't think. And then when you step back and you reflect on what's happened, you know, sometimes you think, actually, I would have probably done things slightly differently. Um, You know, it's great in hindsight, but uh, (laughs) that's the way it is. So, but for me, um, he's sort of always kept me in his inner circle. So he's never, he's always treated me very, very well. Um, You know, I can obviously see the other side of, of Clive, you know, I've had dealings with Twiggy Forrest. There's been other billionaires out there that I've dealt with. They're very much similar, let me tell you that much. It's been very good of Clive to lead me in his inner circle because it means I really um, do get to understand him more. You know, I don't know what the future's going to hold. It'd be nice to get some more up in Parliament. And if you've got to be around these world leaders and they've usually got money and all that sort of stuff, um, it's like you boys in the army. You've got to learn how to deal with these whether you want to or not, <laughs> you
3: know. <laughs> Alright, let's leave Mr Palmer behind and let's, let's talk politics and you've had, you know, call it eight, nine, ten years of experience um, in and out of the Senate across all the different political parties and I want to ask kind of two questions but they're related. The first one is what's different between the political parties and the second linked question is how are you trying to do things differently?
0: Um, I think for me, um, obviously, uh, I probably have a better relationship. Um, well, I do have a better relationship with Labor. But remember, they haven't been in power since I've been there. So that, you know, that relationship might change slightly if they're in power. I don't know until they, um, they get there. But I guess, you know, Labor's working class, um, you know, fights for those that are a little bit um, not, not well off, that sort of thing. So it's more how I, how I grew up in my background and, um, you know, their mums and dads come from factory jobs, trucking, all that sort of stuff, um, you know, the union type thing. Um, and then you've got the Liberals, which were, you know, most of them have been fed off a silver plate. Everything's been given to them, you know. So I don't know whether you call it jealousy or whatever, but, you know, for me, if you want something, you have to go out and earn it because getting on a silver plate, you're not going to get any respect out of me. I can tell you that right now. I don't think that installs loyalty by getting things off a silver platter, because, you, you know, I think you're just so used to giving everything passed to you and you don't have to go out and earn it, um, that you don't, I don't know, you don't sort of have that same, um, I don't know, what am I looking for? I don't know, you just, you, I just don't think you appreciate what you're given as much. Mm. Um, and so I, I have a bit of a problem. I don't get on with the Liberals as well as what I do. I don't have that relation, well, don't have that relationship with them like I do with um, Labor. Um, And as for the Greens, look, we may agree to disagree on things, but um, I can tell you if you take the Green and the environment out of them and the refugees, they're actually really normal people. They're probably the most normal ones up there. Imagine me saying that about the Greens. I know people are, but they are, you know, most of them have had to fight uh, to get where they're, where they are a lot of uh, you know had to fight to get through uni paying off that that sort of stuff have come from um, different backgrounds and they're able to share that and things like that like i said well, i may not agree on their politics all the time but i don't agree with liberal and labor all the time either but to me they seem um you know they're a lot more normal seem to have more time more patience more tolerance that sort of thing um so that's always very interesting um one nation i don't have the time of day for and central alliance uh, which is old nick xenophon team well, of course nick took me under his wing i was very lucky when i first got in that nick took me under his wing um and i still have a friendship with him today and of course working in nick's office is the guys um, that are up, sitting up there now. So that's, that's helped as well, having, just having those three because basically the three of us together means the Liberal, Party can't, Liberal National Party can't get anything through the parliament unless they have one of us. So that's how it works. So it's, uh, it's very, very interesting.
2: And so to come back to the second part of Tim's question, how is the, the Jackie Lambie Network doing it differently? How do you want to define yourself in terms of difference to the, the status quo in Australian politics?
0: Uh, well, I think one thing, we don't take political donations. We take them um, we take them from the general public. So when I was out in the sidelines the last time, hence I had to go and do um, the Jungle Get Me Out of Here and play out there and eat snails and God knows what else. Um, because basically, I couldn't... I, there's no way you can campaign as an independent um, and, and have a job. You just can't do that. So for 19, 20 months, I don't come from a well-off family or anything. My family, you know, certainly can't pay for me and pay my house payments weekly and stuff like that. Um, So I had to go out there and earn that. Um, You won't see other senators standing at traffic lights with Jackie Lambie signs waving at people. And you um, sure as hell won't, um, you know, you won't see other senators, I doubt, eating Vegemite on toast for two or three weeks because they have no money and they're damned if they'll go and ask their parents for 50 bucks. Um, So I guess for me, it's knowing that I actually earned that seat all by myself last time with, you know, with some helpers around me. Um, Mm. You know, when you've got little Tasmanian old people coming up to me and saying, here you go darling, take five bucks, get yourself a cup of coffee. You know, you'd Mm. be staying somewhere say, listen, don't worry about last night's accommodation because we know you're running on broke, all that sort of stuff. And I think to me, so that's probably the most memorable and more than likely will be uh, for the rest of my political career that um, that seat I earned entirely by myself. I got out there uh, even to the point where I should have got $110,000 back from the Australian Electoral Commission because of the, the amount of votes. But see, Malcolm Turnbull decided to change all that in 2016, do anything to get rid of these little micros and independents, right, that unless you've got the receipts and you've spent the money, you don't get it back. So I'm the only one in history, and I imagine that will be for the rest of history, that uh, never got my full entitlement time back because I didn't spend that. All I had to spend was, I think, just over 50 grand mm. for the money that I'd earned on some TV programs to keep going. Um, so, you know, that's what I mean. I think that you appreciate, you know, I appreciate probably where I am today a lot more than what I did eight years ago, even though I, you know, had a big comeback of having to turn my life around after so much time on the sidelines.
2: Now, Jackie, you are clearly no stranger to controversy. I think most Australians would be aware nah, of who you are.
0: My- Reading that crap. That's, that's have we got like the
2: right Jackie story. lambie <laughs> how many of you Senator Jackie Lambie's <laughs> out <over? laughs> um, but you know you, you're well known for for taking really strong stances on a, a whole range of issues and making sometimes controversial um, uh, sort of viewpoints on everything from sort of youth unemployment through to Islam through to Veterans Affairs and foreign policy do you do you see that controversy as a political tool is it is it something that you you've sort of actively generated or is it something that just sort of came
0: I think um, for me, when I first, and I did trust people um, when I first went into politics, um, I've been able to learn, you know, one thing I don't want is division in the country. Um, That's not what we're trying to do. I think Mm -hmm. we all know that. Um, And that was causing division. And I I won't be a part of that. So I've had to, you know, like I said, having to rebuild myself back up, rebuild um, that, you know, that that I can believe in myself and know that I can actually do on my own two feet and stuff like that. So I've learned how to handle that. lot better over the years and how to conduct myself in a much better manner as to not do that and try and get my point across and 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 trust me i work on that every day that that'll just continue to get better hopefully every now and then i'm quite sure that um i don't quite get it right but i'm just really careful i um look we can sit here and we can talk about islam and we know that there's you know there's Really bad parts of it, and they're really shitty. But there's also some really good Muslim people out there, so you can't. It's like being living in public housing uh, just because 10% of them want to make the rest of us look like shit, shouldn't mean the rest of us are all crap, right?
4: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: So that's that's how I look at it. So I'm, I'm really, really um, careful like that. It's, it's the same when I speak about the Chinese. I'll make it very clear. I'm not talking about the Chinese people, I'm talking about the CPP. Uh, you know, you just want to be really, really careful there because we, you know, we are a country. Um, that wel- welcomes migrants, and I want to make sure that um, that continues and that, you know, we give them a second chance at life as well. Mm. Um, but those ones that, you know, what I'd like to see, is those ones that an a bit more of an example, which I'm sure that Peter Dutton have been trying to do over the years, is you're not playing the game, then we're deporting you. But mm. unfortunately, this is where they're going differ, you know. They want to go through the courts, the courts you know, tend to leave them here without saying, you know what, you've got to make examples so people stop doing this. And if you tell, say that's it, you're going because you've mucked up, then they go and they don't get to come back here.
4: Mm. It's as
0: simple as that. So, you know, there's still still a lot that needs to be done. So I'm really just trying to be a little bit more careful and being a little bit more articulate in how I say things, um, you know, but the, the more years I'm in. Yeah. yeah it's like someone, someone, you know, I have Tasmanians come up to me and say, you know what, you're just becoming like a good old bottle of Pinot. You know, the longer you're sitting on the shelf, the better you're going to count. <laughs> <laughs> what do I taste like?
2: That's <laughs> the, the height of compliments from the yeah, Tasmanian. Tasmanians. Tasmanian. I know you're waiting for me. I know I'm being a
5: coward. Why don't you?
2: We've spoken a lot in this show about, you know, the the reductionist, you know, it's easy to just draw these sort of black and white camps about some really complex issues. And um, you're seeing all around the world, these sort of sensationalized political views that are, uh, and you know, we're probably seeing it play out in America as we speak, that, that just push people into these camps and don't allow that sort of viewpoint on what that those shades of gray in the middle, which is, is kind of where the truth is. Can I ask
3: a shades of grey question? Off the back of the Brereton Report, you wrote an article entitled There's No Appetite for Digger Witch Hunt, Jackie, in which, if I can quote you, you say, there's no appetite for going after our own heroes. Do you believe that?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I do. Yeah, and so does most of the public, mate. And this is where it's come back to bottom fair on the arse. Uh, you, You know, these guys have the public behind them. They, I've been up there long enough saying, talking about these rotations, that's, that's what I mean about the public, the public understanding about veterans. Um, what they do understand is the Vietnam veterans got a really hard time and after a very long time uh, got their entitlements Yeah, 50 years later. What I don't want to see, uh, first of all, is these are new guys coming back from the Middle East taking 50 years to get their entitlements and watching what it's done to their family. Mm-hmm. My, uh, my uncle and I, very close. He's a Vietnam veteran, did two tours, got shot in the head. I've seen what it's done to my nieces. And I've seen what it's done to their kids. Um, You know, so for me and these um, alleged war crimes, there is people just, they just go, you know what? We don't want to talk about it. We're not interested. Just make it go away. They understand that they've done rotation after rotation. They've done, they understand that, you know, people are anti-psychotic drugs. They understand we never had enough troops. And they understand that the hierarchy should have put their foot down and been honest with these politicians way before 2010 instead of using these guys rotation after rotation. Mm. That they do understand. They understand the very simple facts. And most Australians, most Australians have, you know, either had some World War One, World War Two, the Vietnam War, peacemaking or peacekeeping. There's not many families out there. Can't say if I don't know anyone that served
3: mm.
0: um, or no one in my family serves.
3: And, and more contemporary right. so veterans most of there's that sentiment
0: it. out there. There's that, yeah, there's that sentiment out there and there's a respect out there
3: yeah.
0: for Australian troops. Now, we don't do what they do in America. We don't go out there and all fly flags. We don't stand at the airports and want our names are released and, and be given first seats, we don't do any of that, um, probably because we're not a big cohort like they are out there. Mm. Um, but we're very humble in the way we do. So I think the politicians got it very 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 wrong had they done if they got their boots on like i do every day and get out there and actually speak to the people they would have known that And this is where they've got it really really wrong i'm not happy about the way it's been done i'm not happy about comforts. i've just got i've got 10 pages of questions that are about to go to the minister that'll go off for the next uh, 24 hours Mm. um and some of those questions have come from their own over there and come Mm. from elsewhere um, that have served that um this is what's happening now you're splitting the pack because, uh, you know, these people that actually care give us stuff about these diggers, a hierarchy, they're now starting to fight back. Now, they might be using me to do that, um, and I don't really care, but sooner or later you're going to see them pop out and they're actually, you know, you'll see them starting to pop out out in the open. Mm. They can use me for the time being because they know what's going on over here with these bloody generals and they've had a gut it. Yeah, it's, So it be interesting. very interesting to see where the next 12 months goes.
3: We've talked extensively about this trajectory of purpose, you know, the first... Um The first of the special operations task group elements went into Afghanistan in 2002, just after 9/11. Just after 9/11, it was late 2001. The advanced elements, and in the time from then until we pulled them out, there was this constant changing trajectory of purpose. And you know, we can talk those in uniform and leadership having responsibility at all levels. And if they don't take responsibility, and they didn't know it was on their watch. That's a problem. But to your point on political responsibility, that seems to be the voice that's being very quiet, that in all of that time, no one in the political leadership asked a question, you know how long for? For what reason, for what outcome? are we making a difference? Is it ever possible to create true change? and then articulate that right down to, those guys and girls with dust in the welts of their boots what's your thoughts on political ownership of the problem off the back of yeah we well, you, you,
0: you won't get it from them you won't get it from those majors right first of all any people that are serving they know what i do their loyalty is now to their political party right so mm. institute talk about institutionalised, but um, you know, as for me, I want the answers, and so do those people out there that have, have worn that uniform. So it doesn't bring any harm for me, mate. They can't demote me. The only person that can demote me is Jackie Lambie. Me, you know, I'll, I'll take her on any day. Um,
3: well, you've been demoted so, before. We've already ascertained that, you know, from yeah, to lance, yeah, yeah, corporal lance corporal back to corporal. I've
0: had a taste, but I don't mind doing it twice. <laughs> uh, you know, um, so I think um, for me, and it's 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 knowing. Um, you know, it's like making me treasurer. You wouldn't do that because I don't have an economic background. Um, so, when you have to um, when you have to jump into somewhere new and you actually don't know anything about that, air, especially, especially military, it is quite difficult to um, for them to ascertain what is going on and why didn't anyone? Why isn't you know? Why isn't Blair, John Howard, and uh, Bush? Why aren't they being done for war crimes? You know, what's this going to do? We've got the Vietnam veterans. This is a slippery slope. You're going after them next.
4: Mm.
0: You know, th- th- these are the questions that need to be answered. Why now? Why mm. are you bothering to stand up there apart from you made the call wrong and now they're, they're feeling the bite on the ass. So it's going to get a hell of a lot worse because I'm not moving uh, for them and I have a lot of questions to ask. Why now? You Why pres- are you doing this bunch of blokes now? You know, well, it's never been done in history. You've never gone after them. Uh, And I've done a library study on this um, since World War uh, II. We certainly, they couldn't, they don't have as much paperwork, but they can't really find anything anyway, but they can't just give me 100%. But since World War II, no-one's been done on on war crimes. I just want to know why, you know, is is there such a distance between the hierarchy in the military, the politicians and the diggers that are out there on the front line? And obviously there is. um, I think a lot of this is going to come out this year, and that's a good thing. It needs to be spoken about in the public arena, um, and I'll be making sure it's um, spoken about. But these politicians, uh, yes, by coming out and you know putting things in the paper um, about me and saying, um, you know, and saying you know there is an appetite uh, to uh, to do war crimes, um, that sort of thing, they have been absolutely slammed down here. Mm. So there's no appetite; for it. nobody wants to know about it. Their heart you know, the public their heart out to these men and men who fight. Mm. All they know is that while they're out there they feel safe.
3: theory on the why and the why now questions that you're asking?
0: Well, I tell you, um, I don't really know apart from other, you know, the hierarchy of the military that disconnected from everybody else, um, that their heads are that far up their arse, that they're more interested in the medals that they win and being the Governor General next time when they finish their careers. Quite frankly, I don't get it and there's nothing else I can come up with. Um, you know, I want to know, I want to know when they're going to stand and say, I'm taking, I'm taking part of responsibility today. And if you're doing those men, you're doing me too. Not one of them's come out and said that, not one.
4: Mm.
0: But don't worry, I intend to get one of them to do it sooner yeah. or later. Right? It's- no, why shouldn't they? If they're the good leaders that they say they are and they've got all those big gongs hanging out of them, or off them, then get up and show me what sort of leader you are and you you take responsibility for your lack of action that you can stand up to these politicians. Mm. Or what did you do to stop it? Or what did you do to make sure these guys weren't doing 12 or 14 rotations? What Mm. did you do? Nothing.
3: Yeah, the Court of Public Opinion's been interesting watching through that prism on their view of that strategic military level and what they have not done and, you know, the potential double standards, or maybe the pure double standards. Yeah, it is
0: double standards, but throwing your men under the bus like that is disgusting. You're not a leader's ass as far as I'm concerned. Start on the leadership in the military, mate, because I've just about done with them. Um, (laughs) You know, so, um, but the whole thing is when you don't have decent leadership and you do this to your men, those proper boys coming through now, they're not going to trust them, and you're supposed to lead them in a war zone. What about national security? You know, how many more troops are you going to lose because they're not going to listen to the hierarchy? They're not going to take orders from you, and it's begun to come looser and looser. So it's time to flush them out, time for them to go and pick up some golf sticks. Their jobs are over, nick off. That's my point of view, and they should get it. We need a clean ram, we need fresh blood up there at the top. That's what it needs. Hmm.
3: The other thing you've been very passion- passionately said, um, the other thing you've been very passionate about is veteran suicide, Jackie. Can you give us some insights on that and what should be happening? As we see more veterans, um, an unsatisfactory and inappropriate number. I mean, one's too many, uh, but what can be done? What should be done?
0: Yeah, it's, it's really not that difficult, mate. I can't believe they still haven't got this. I don't know how many times I need to be told. Um, you certainly, uh, you know, it's about time, and I think defence is starting to do it. As I, you know, I have to smack them down all the time saying until their claims are done, you don't, you don't discharge them. That doesn't mean they parade every day because when their head's, their, space, their head's not in that space, just make sure you're doing welfare checks. I don't need to parade every day. Just because they're sick and you want to see them, that's just, um, that's just being a bully uh, just make sure you're welfare checking them. And if that takes you three months to get their claims done, then so be it. But defence has got to take responsibility in this as well. we can't just say there's a front gate piss off. Those days are over. Um, we need to make sure that, you know, mates for mates in Brisbane. I don't know if you guys have had the advantage of seeing the hub that they've got up there. Mm. They are uh, those two fellows that there's two guys there from the RSL Queensland. Um since 2012, what they've been able to do that that hub. That hub has been set up. It's been very successful. They've now got their own advocates going out on bases at Inogra, um, Oki, all that sort of stuff. Uh, they've got the psychiatrists there. They've got the people filling in the forms there, uh, your DVA forms, that sort of thing. They're doing the arts classes. They're making sure that they do weekend bike rides. They could coming, you know, they get, just, they've get they about got this right. Now, since we can see that is the blueprint for what every hub, should put slightly adjusted depending on what your area and who you've got in there, but that's what your blueprint should be. Those guys have now spent eight years doing that and getting that down pat. And they're still doing this. They're, they're paying the university of Tasmania down here, 200,000 bucks to do a study on why we should have a hub in Tasmania, mm. you know? So, mm. so these the are sort of things. So, that's the trouble with Veterans Affairs keeps giving money out to the university University when their answers are already sitting there in front of them. You've now got five acts. You've got the Merck of the Circa, the Dirk of the VA and the ComSuper. Um, I understand ComSuper needs to stand alone. You can't tell me you can't move all those acts into one mm. uh, with maybe annexes. Um, you know, if you've served in war, you're going to get this extra. Uh, if you've served in peacekeeping, you're going to get a little bit more over here, whatever. Simplify all that. Um, you know, their, their, their IT systems they were supposed to be bringing up and they've spent millions and millions of dollars Been an absolute disaster because it didn't start off from scratch. I just put, kept putting Band-Aids on them. My stupid thing they've done yet. Um, so there's things out there that work. Uh, they see things that work. I'm not sure. I used, used to say getting rid of those repat hospitals. I'm not so sure. I don't, if something's not working. Um, you know, you've got to you've got to change the way you're doing it, or find something that is working. Um, and this is the problem. It's the it's the Canberra bubble. It's what makes me laugh about the commissioner. She might be ex Army Reserve, the new commissioner that they've put on to look at veterans um, uh, veterans affairs. But one, she's never been through the other side of it. Well, they've just laid everything out against her. That's the first thing. And taken you know, just taking a belting for ten years, mm. and so and therefore, and she hasn't spent like I probably have coming up to my 10th year, out there knowing who's in the zoo, who's doing what, what's working, what's not, you know, what's the softer group out there that they're just out there doing some knitting, whatever. You've got, you just can't learn that overnight, mate. Hmm. This is a massive area. I've got like 3,500 service orders out there that are actually on the charity list. Quite frankly, um, like I said, you know what, if you don't want to put your careers on your arse on the line for it, then put me in it and I'll have it fixed with this. Because first of all, you get all the hierarchy going, here comes Lambie, I'm resigning, which would be a good result within an hour. And then I'd bring in the people that I know are really good and operate good in these areas. And Not all of them are ex-military. It'd be about half and half. Best in the business.
2: Switch tack from the, the war in Afghanistan to the war on drugs. Now, you've spoken, um, in fact, you alluded before about your, your son's battle with ICE um, and your, your own sort of personal views on that. From a policy perspective, are we getting it right? Is anyone winning the war on drugs? Is, is there a solution to uh, the, this sort of vexing problem, which just seems to be getting worse across Australia?
0: No, no, because um, it's like Veterans Affairs. There's way too many um, hierarchy up there that can't get outside that, of that Campbell bar. Once again, if you go around all the rehab centres in Australia, you'll see which is working the best and how they're operating. And the other thing is that um, there's no regulation on when it comes to drug and alcohol rehab. So instead of having a federal... Right, each state's running their own and doing what they want. There, there's, um, there's when it comes to regulation, it should be under um, the Commonwealth's hands. It's the biggest mistake they've made. and They still don't want to look at it. It needs to be one rule for all. Uh, so that's a problem in itself. These drug and rehab providers, uh, they need to be running at a very, very high standard because it's the only way you're going to get the results. And not only it's, it's like the military when the, when they look, you don't just throw them out. You're going to have to put them for the next year or two years. It's a follow through, follow through for it to be successful. Um, so that's not, you know, and that's, that's not what's, it's like for everybody else up there, you know, sometimes you don't feel normal because you think surely I'm not the only one that can see that. That's just common sense. That works, that doesn't, that works, that doesn't. Oh, that sort of does. But if you chuck that in that works, actually going around and seeing this, no different than what you do in the army, you know, you go but you go out there and you watch, you know, you watch watch what's going on, have a look at it, take back your intel, take it back to the table. Um, I'm not sure what the answer is, but while I sit there, and, you know, I can only get up there and speak about it and do so much. Mm.
3: Jackie, you've dedicated, my final question, you've dedicated the majority of your professional life to public service and you're constantly in the public eye and being scrutinised. What do you do for you? do so much for other people focusing uh, on issues but what do you do for you
0: um for me um you know I was sort of starting to smell the roses you know because when you're out that long and you get a second chance of life you think you're beauty and then you're just starting to get comfortable and you lose your seat um, citizenship and then you got you got to fight I re- actually really haven't had that much time to think about it I still walk every day more mm-hmm. um, so, not just even in, in um, sitting know, weeks. In my camper? COVID ass. <laughs> yeah, I'll, yeah. Most days I will. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, mate, you know that that COVID ass like everybody else's is out of control. Um, <laughs> so you do that, but also for my amenity um, um, to clear my head, I get my eighties music on. I don't take my phone.
3: Eighties music.
0: Yeah, just listen to my eighties music. Um, and so I think I'm still. I actually like being out there and talking to the people. And, you know, we give, um, it's nice, it's amazing how much difference just by helping someone, whether it's the elderly down here getting to get a hip replacement and get them off the codeine that they've been on for two years, trying to get someone in for a toothache, whether it's getting a veteran and their family back on their feet. Um, to me, that's, that's really rewarding. Um, so I think I'll probably get another year or so under my belt um, and then I'll have a bit of a look. So um, for me, I, I just find that um, quite privileged um, to be able to have those not just serve my country in uniform, but now serve it in Parliament um, and quite very grateful to be given those opportunities for whatever. Um, so sort of for me, I, you know, what, what what you get back in space, I've always been that by giving, by giving and paying forward. I'm back and I'm a big believer in that sort of stuff. But it's amazing just how much little you can help someone a little bit, which makes a massive difference in their life. And for me, it doesn't get much better than that, seeing them get back on with their lives. And, you know, And when you think it's about to slow down, you have things like war crimes pop up and you go, Jesus, here we go. Mm. You know, so when you're just starting to slow down, especially with you bloody veterans, it's
1: like, oh, no, what
0: now? You know, so, but anyway, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have it any other way. Um, so, for me, I accept this is part of me. This is what I'll do for the rest of my political career, just helping Tasmania, but doing part of this job. Where that leads me, who knows? Um, but, you know, it also, I think, um, you know, you get world leaders pay. It pay, it, it pays dividends. You get world leaders to come in here. I've got a vote on the Defence, Foreign Affairs and Trade. So, I'm one of the only difference to hold a vote at that, certainly, in one of those ports, in one of those. Port, in, in one of those um, uh, in one of those, uh, what do we call committees, mm-hmm. um, you know. Uh, so you get a lot, of, a lot of countries that come over rely on their hierarchy a lot more than what we do. They're better set up, you know, especially in Parliament. Uh, they're very respectful. they already done their homework with Jackie Lambie's. is. Uh, they're very respectful. They'll, when they're in the committee, they'll actually look at me. Um, so that's all very interesting. So your name, you know, you know you're not just floating around here. I uh, get veterans from the US uh, and New Zealand on my social media coming through um, that will share stuff from there. Um, that's always good. Um, so I think, you know, whether it's here and they can see I'm fighting um, all over in the US or elsewhere, they can say, God, this is a politician doing everything she can there, she's doing everything she can. I just think sometimes, you know, if it just gives that one person hope that will stop them from that day and taking their lives, if I don't give a stuff what country there is, they're in, um, then, you know, then for me it doesn't get any more rewarding than that.
2: Jackie, that's super admirable. Thank you very much for your time. We certainly look forward to seeing how this next year plays out on a whole bunch of fronts, but I think you're dead right. It'll be nothing if not interesting um, to to see how the the aftermath of Brereton rolls out, and we can almost guarantee you'll be in the the thick of it. You won't almost,
0: mate. I'll guarantee it right
2: now. Uh, That's brilliant. Jackie, thank you for your time. You're welcome. Thanks
0: very much for having me on. Good on you.
2: Thanks, Jackie.
0: I stand outside
5: in the rain. I feel it burn my
0: skin. No, just contact me. not will sure.
2: That's fantastic. Yep. Thank, Thank you. you. Go
3: good and good enjoy a glass of Pinot. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. No, I've got to get rid of my COVID ass, mate. It's killed it.
2: <laughs> We'll go for a run or something. Yeah, no, I've done me all. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you very much. Good you, guys. Bye. See you, Jackie.
5: you. Bye.
2: COVID ass. <laughs>
5: COVID Why can't my mind just stop? Myself. I try to calm myself by slowly breathing in, but the air it burns my lungs. I'm choking. I feel the pain inside, but it's so deep they cannot see. They're probably thinking bad of me for not trying, but I try so hard. Can they not see? I'll follow my plans, I won't be held back I'm not good
1: Now to The Debrief. We try to go always a little further in this podcast and greatly appreciate your input. Please let us know your feedback, the good, the bad, or the ugly. Also, if you know someone who is living a life less ordinary, we'd love to hear about them. You can get in touch at debrief at unforgiving60.com. That's debrief at unforgiving60.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and write a review for us on Apple Podcasts. Until next episode, keep filling your unforgiving minutes with 60 seconds worth of distance run. See you next time on the Unforgiving 60.